Welcome, everybody, to our inaugural Church Innovations podcast. I am Pastor Casey Sugden from Redeemer Lutheran Church in Plymouth, a consultant for Church Innovations uh, Partnership for Missional Church, and a Star Wars superfan. With me today is my co-host. Uh, I'm Rachel Stout, uh, pastor, redeveloper at uh, First Evangelical Lutheran Church in Parker's Prairie. And I am also a consultant with CI and a, um, an avid reader of biographies this summer. And with us will be our uh, other regular co-host and today's interviewee, uh, Reverend Dr. Patrick Kiefert. Sorry. I'm Pat Kiefert, uh, founder uh, and president and director of research for a while yet at uh, Church Innovations in this time of uh, a major generational shift. Uh, I won't review uh, how young my two uh, partners are today, but let's say they're closer to my grandchildren's age than they are mine. <laughs> That's true. That uh, that is well. I have to be about the same age as Danielle, I think. But. You you're close. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm going to be 41. I don't know where that puts me in in relationship to anyone. But yeah. <laughs> well, if uh, the church continuously changes the age of young adult, I should be able to stay a young adult well into retirement. So today we're going to walk you through uh, some basic terms in uh, what it means to be church in the world today, uh, and a little bit about what church innovations has to say uh, to a changing church in a changing world. Uh, Pat, would you like to walk us through the term missional? Well, I have a fairly simple uh, understanding of what missional church means. Uh, it takes as its uh, main point that the church now understands that in clarity that the mission is God's mission and that God is and has been uh, even before the beginning of time, missional. The very nature of God is a father who sends a son. Missio is the Latin word for that sending. And a son and a father who send a Holy Spirit. And they all depend upon those relationships of persons, the three persons of the Trinity, to be God. And that even the creation of a universe is an act of that going out of God. So from the very beginning of time, or if you will, even before the beginning of time, eternity, God is in 
mission. So this changes the orientation of what it means for the church to be in mission. It means that the church participates in God's mission in the world. So in practical terms, it means, so what is God up to in Jesus in our world today? And what small part does our local church have in that mission of God? And therefore, the big question is a question of discernment. Uh, when I work as a consultant with congregations, I don't know what their part, what God's preferred and promised future is for them. Uh, that's not my job to know. It is my job, much like a midwife, to invite them to a spiritual journey in asking that question, what is God up to here? in this place now where are we in that and what small part can we discern as god's preferred future for us thank you pat could you say a little bit more about that discernment process um, and how uh, congregations are are led through that Yes, I can. Uh, first of all, we've developed a, a model or process that faces the simple fact that the church today in a secular age, and I'm very influenced by the work that eventually shows itself in Charler, Charlie Taylor's brilliant work, Secular Age, that we live in a disenchanted world in the West. Um, while at one time in Western culture, the pressure and the, the social uh, and psychological realities uh, made it really easy to believe that the world was filled uh, with spiritual reality and that God was a part of that world, those assumptions no longer exist. And that even within the church, mm -hmm. uh, we, have, we have adopted what I would call a practical atheism, mm -hmm. um, or if you will, a passive atheism. We, we too believe in the way we behave that though in our heart, we believe God is very active in Jesus Christ in our world, when we've done research in congregations, we've discovered that they, uh, they are filled with good people who believe that God is at work in the world in Jesus. But when they describe their everyday lives, in less than 5% of the sentences, does God ever function as the subject of a sentence with an active verb? This is what I mean by functional or practical atheism. For pastors, this is disastrous because um, we, we de facto feel as if 
the dying of the church, the waning of the church, or its success is our business. Um, yes, God's work, but our hands. Uh, we're the ones who are the chief actors. And the result of that is burnout, despair, disgust, self-loathing. I mean, 30-some years of walking with congregations and pastors has, uh, has taught me this tremendous pain, uh, frustration, and anger. So we know there is an adaptive challenge facing us, and we borrow the work from Ron Heifetz, uh, that th there are no quick fixes out there. You can't go someplace on the shelf and say, this is the way uh, to attend to this great challenge. We're not even sure what all the depth of the challenges are. Uh, indeed, what we want to do is help congregations discover their missional challenge. So we create what Ron Heifetz calls holding environments, um, kind of ways of rites of passage a number of times a year. Uh, to work with both the spiritual leaders and all the members of the congregation uh, to help them have a safer place to ask one simple question, what is God's preferred and promised future for their congregation right here and now? Could you uh, give us an example or a little more detail about the difference uh, between pastors and churches believing that they are the chief actors and uh, the active God language that you mentioned? Um, I just remember for myself back in seminary, it was something I kind of rebelled against because I didn't didn't quite understand it. So what's the difference between um, me or my congregation is the chief actor and God is the chief actor with us participating. It's always interesting for me. I, I can learn so much just sitting through a worship service with the local church. It is the chief public act of the, uh, of the church gathered, uh, in contrast to the church dispersed or sent. And I'm always amazed at how we implore God to help us with our mission. And the assumption is it's the church's mission. It's our mission in the prayers and in the longing and the desires. And the, even in the, the prayers of the liturgy, uh, we reveal that we don't, in fact, experience God active in our everyday lives. And as a congregation, we don't imagine that there is uh, a very active God in the world. Jesus, indeed, is still uh, giving and bearing witness and calling the world to reconciliation. And that this is God's mission, and we. Uh, are are being invited to be taken up into it. So just take a, listen to the prayers. It's uh, to me very revealing. Uh, a second place that I I begin to to kind of test and 
and discover this reality is that, uh, frankly, for most of us, we think faith is a private, very uh, important, deep, powerful thing, but it's essentially a private reality uh, that we take into our lives and that uh, God is not in our neighbor. Um, God is not at work in the institutions around us. As a matter of fact, there's a kind of assumption that the institutions are the enemy and that the world is the enemy. Yes, God loves it, but somehow it is not a place where God is active in Jesus. A third way I, I often find is that uh, that's very painful is we think the business of the church is keeping up the church uh, as an institution. And we feel really quite discouraged in this time in a lot of uh, the forms of Christianity in North America because we, we feel as if we're failing to do that chief work. And it's about maintaining that Christian community. We've lost a really deep sense that what God has been doing since the beginning of time is forming community with the entire universe around his son. And that God uh, continued to doing that. Uh, the whole testament of the scriptures is that forming of community uh, in around the second person of the Trinity, all of creation, right? Uh, it's the whole, uh, the whole of creation that's being gathered together, and so you get this sense: it's about the preservation of the church versus it's about the forming of community around Christ, and that's uh, that's a huge shift. Those are, are three simple ways uh, when I listen to a congregation and how they speak and behave that I can test that. Now, there are many, many more. Um, going back to a point that you made, Pat, about um, faith being private and our, um, our inability sometimes to see God uh, in our neighbor and at work in our neighbor. Um, could you speak about the um, the the process within PMC where or the the how cohorts are formed um, intentionally um, uh, mixing up denomination and because um, um, I I think that well I tend to think that that's important at getting at how we see God at work. Um, around us. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. You know, one of the, the great challenges that I think Charles Taylor helps us see better than perhaps any philosopher is that in the modern period, in the secular age, uh, we, have, we have a social imaginary, he calls it. Uh, these are the assumptions we live in uh, that we are buffered selves, that the only meaning-making 
uh, creatures in the universe are uh, humans. There may be some extraterrestrials. We have a kind of desire that there's someplace somewhere else someone's making meaning. Uh, this, of course, is so vastly different than the, uh, the world that most people live in the world and that most Westerners lived in before the modern period where uh, they see and experience uh, that there are meaning makers, uh, for example, in trees. I think of trees right now because I just finished reading a, a biography of Tolkien. Uh, and uh, he, of course, was making a profound Christian argument in his very popular books, though it's always amazing to me how people uh, get caught up in what he calls his sub-creation uh, within this Christian imaginary. And they are aching, you can see it, to live in a world in which trees have wisdom and uh, are making uh, sense and maybe making more sense than than humans are, right? Um, this is the uh, enchanted world that we lost in modernity. Uh, we can't go back to that, but what Tolkien offers is a Christian sense of a, uh, of a uh, possible world in which uh, we as individuals uh, are not the only meaning makers and that as humans, we're not the only meaning makers. All those languages, you know, he has complete uh, uh, glossaries for every one of those languages spoken, the different uh, elfin languages, et cetera. His, his point is, is that there's all sorts of meaning making going on uh, in, in God's universe. So uh, one of the key things we're trying to do in the Partnership for Missional Church is liberate, emancipate, individuals from this buffered self, from this sense that the only meaning making going on in their everyday lives are themselves or maybe some other persons, uh, to liberate them and emancipate them into a world in which there is indeed lots of meaning makers uh, and in which God is the chief one. To do that, uh, we think we need to create those safe spaces. But here's the other interesting thing we found out. We've been working at this for over 30 years. We discovered, number one, that congregations learn more from one another than they learn from outside experts. Two, we learned that congregations don't want to learn from one another. Uh, the evidence being if they did, they would, right? How often do church councils go over to another church council in their community and say, hey, we'd like to learn from you. Now, sadly, we tend to see them as competition uh, rather than a part of God's mission. It's a very, very strange behavior. Now, and please... I know that no one would say that out loud, but it's how we behave. The third thing we learned is the primary way most churches learn from other churches is through show and tell. We go to some 
big church that's successful, and we hear them tell their story. It's show and tell. Now, as a model of adult learning, that is the least effective. So when we actually turn to learn from other congregations, we use a model of learning that, uh, well, is least effective. Fourth, we have spent over 30 years learning how to gather congregations and help them learn from one another around this uh, very simple question, what is God's preferred and promised future? And oddly enough, we've discovered that that seems to work better when it's not just one denomination in the room, but that we have a diversity of denominations uh, and also classes and, and, and uh, traditions, etc. cetera. Uh, it opens up new possibilities of learning. What, uh, the answer to our question, what is God's preferred and promised future? You uh, have mentioned several times um, about uh, how both other churches and earlier uh, that uh, places in the community and community activities are not the enemy of the church, which uh, I know that at least in my context, the idea of Sunday morning soccer or Wednesday afternoon baseball um, draws some ire from the congregation. And uh, knowing that it can be very liberating uh, to not view the Catholic Church up the hill as the enemy or uh, to view Sunday morning soccer as something that is not just without God, but, you know, not anti-God either, that God might be active in there. Um, But that those things are so ingrained in us. uh, When you talk about that during the PMC process, uh, do you get some pushback on those? (laughs) Yeah, uh, quite a bit of pushback. Uh, first of all, let me. We've kept using uh, this uh, PMC. That's the Partnership for Missional Church, which is one of the ways in which uh, Church Innovations has learned to accompany uh, congregations uh, and to midwife new life. Uh, anyway, um, there is usually quite a bit of pushback. I think the primary pushback comes from. Uh, those persons in the congregation who are usually our most faithful and committed, really good folk, uh, being offended, frightened, angry about the status that the church has lost in most of our communities. Uh, in a Christendom culture, a culture that uh, grew out of an, uh, the Christian tradition in the West, uh, they could assume the right to claim certain hours of the week as theirs, Sunday morning being one of them. And as uh, a more secular culture, a disenchanted culture uh, has had its sway, uh, other things 
are more desirable than uh, gathering on a Sunday morning uh, with a bunch of people you hardly know uh, and going through uh, a worship service that uh, frankly seems a little boring. And uh, we live in a society where at least huge portions of our culture believe they're starving to death for time. They just don't have enough time. And there was this uh, fairly useless uh, day of the week, uh, and they could do something really important, like being with their kids and going to a soccer game. And uh, we also know we live in a culture where especially our younger people are um, suffering from obesity and uh, caring for our bodies and caring for our families. These are deep commitments of God in forming human community. And that desire in people's lives to care for their bodies, to care for their families, uh, that's godly. And uh, it's frankly frightening when that takes precedent, uh, those godly things take precedent from the other work of gathering human community in Jesus, uh, namely the Christian liturgy, the Christian worship. So that's part of where the pushback comes. We've lost a privileged status. It's scary. It creates anger and frustration. There are, of course, other sources, but we find that's one of the really big ones. Uh, and you'll notice that uh, often we, we don't see God doing God's work in those other activities. But God is definitely doing God's work in those other activities. God is always building a trustworthy, uh, loving world. Uh, God has not given up on that commitment. God is always doing that. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing when you see uh, key people in a local church begin to look at all the ways God is doing that in their lives and then have to do the discernment which of those pieces of God's mission might our congregation be called to join those people doing God's work and form Christian community around those. It's really exciting when they begin to see that. That's a liberating, emancipatory event. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about the uh, Partnership for Missional Church. Would you uh, care to go into a little more depth into what that, uh, what that process looks like? If uh, we have anybody from a congregation who would be interested, uh, how long is it? What, uh, what is your or my role as consultant? Uh, what is the congregation expected of? And 
where's God in that? So the first question, as you know, is, uh, as a congregation recognized that, well, we're a bunch of good people, we're doing good things, but this doesn't seem to be uh, turning out like we expected. Something's wrong. And they have a gut hunch. Uh, sometimes I call it, they smell death, but they don't want to talk about it. They have a gut hunch that uh, this is a life or death time in the decisions they're making. And they know that, uh, that if they don't make them, they may miss that opportunity. And such congregations are usually the best congregations to say, you know, um, one more visioning session, one more planning session, et cetera. Uh, even if they're really good plans we come up with and a great vision is not going to change us. Something deeper uh, about our culture, the deep values we have has to be addressed in order to reach this culture. And they realize this is going to take a while. Our research shows that uh, congregations, and this is true especially if the most politically liberal ones are the most conservative as a social organization. Uh, they change very slowly. And uh, three to five years is what most of the research we've seen it takes to just even get that deep spiritual cultural change moving. So the partnership uh, begins with the assumption it's going to be a three-year minimum uh, commitment. And uh, it's always amazing to me how many congregations will say, well, that's just too much time. Uh, and once again, that problem of time, right? So we ask them to commit to three to five years of working together. The first three years, uh, they will have... Uh, a pair of church innovation consultants, these midwives who come to accompany them, walk with them in helping them to answer this uh, simple question, what is God's preferred and promised future for our, uh, our local church? Uh, they will meet at least three times a year on Fridays and Saturdays uh, on on Friday is a meeting for the spiritual leaders. Then Friday night, uh, a steering team of five to seven folk uh, will also join those spiritual leaders. And then all day Saturday. And it's a action reflection model of learning because what we're looking to do is change habits. So we'll... Uh, have them learn from one another. We'll uh, reflect on what they have been doing and learn from that and then help them to take on uh, another uh, task in which the real work happens between what we call the cluster gatherings, these three meetings or gatherings a year. 
the, there are three what we call phases, roughly a year long each. The first is called discovery. We discover our partners. We discover God. We discover uh, people within our congregation, within other congregations, and within our communities who are partners in this mission of God. We do that primarily through one uh, set of activities, listening. But we do all sorts of listening. But listening is the key uh, habit we learn in the first year. This, at the end of that first year, we take a guess. The congregation agrees to what they think their national challenge is. In that second year, they uh, begin to explore, to experiment, to risk, uh, get used to uh, making mistakes and learning from mistakes. Uh, and through that, they do sorts of missional experiments within their community. And out of that uh, year, they begin to say, oh, here's what we've learned. Uh, here are some things that seem to have worked. Here are some things that didn't. Here are some of the ways we might change. And in the third year, they learn to focus on that mission. And we teach them some very practical skills for keeping a focus on what they have believed God is calling them to. Uh, Pat, could you speak about the listening to God part, the, um, the dwelling in the word um, time that takes place during the PMC process? Well, we introduced six different, some in, in, the, in the UK, uh, in the United Kingdom, they call them the holy habits. Uh, in South Africa, where we've worked, or Southern Africa, they call them the missional practices. Anyway, the first of those in the center of those mission practices is called dwelling in the word. And it is a, a, a deliberate development of the ancient practice of the Lectio Divina, which is, uh, you know, uh, godly reading uh, of scripture. And uh, it's fairly simple. One of the simple principles we have with all of our missional pra practices, holy habits, is they need to be organic. You need to be able to introduce them in uh, two minutes and have people try them. And that the learning will take place afterwards rather than in the lecture beforehand. So uh, dwelling in the word is we uh, have a text of scripture. Uh, we pray. Someone is invited to pray that the Holy Spirit guide are attending to God's word. The scripture is read aloud by another person. We want multiple voices. And people are asked to listen and then to uh, sit in silence. Uh, at a bare minimum uh, for 90 seconds. I'll talk about the importance of that 90 seconds later. Um, and then in some places, the text is read once again, and then people are asked to pair up and listen another person into free speech 
the first time around on one of two questions. They don't have to do both. One was, where was their attention, their imagination grabbed? Um, and where, uh, what question would you like to ask a, a biblical scholar? Uh, because uh, this question just is left after you've listened to God's word. And then they uh, share that with one another, and it's uh, each person's job to report back to the larger group what they heard, not what they said. Uh, because this is an act of listening for the word of God in the experience of another person uh, and advocating for this other person. We try to make sure those persons are persons they don't know. We call them reasonably friendly looking strangers. That was, uh, that was both a good intro to dwelling in the word and a good teaser for the other five missional habits or practices. Um, as we are uh, still gathered here today, Pat, is there anything else that is uh, pressing that you need to tell us either about missional church or about the partnership for missional church process that CI uh, does? Well, we have a curious dilemma at Church Innovations. Uh, while we started our work here in North America, uh, in the 80s, um, the Partnership for Missional Church has flourished every, on every continent but here, <laughs> almost. Uh, we have uh, a deep commitment uh, in the uh, Church of England, in Baptist uh, congregations there, Methodist, Uniting, Reformed. Uh, we even have researched uh, that's been done on our work there in the United Kingdom that uh, people can uh, check out a link on our website. Our partners there are the Church Mission Society. Uh, we've been working for uh, a quarter of a century with the Partnership for Missional Church in Southern Africa, uh, starting in South Africa, then Namibia, Botswana, uh, Zimbabwe, Malawi, it's, uh, it's, it's been amazing. And uh, there's the new renewal of the Partnership for Missional Church when I was at our International Research Consortium in South Africa. The, there's just an exploding uh, commitment to the journey. Uh, also in Australia and now uh, in uh, Latin America, there is a birthing of a, a Spanish-speaking uh, partnership in the National Church. Now, of course, this always has to be localized, appropriate to the cultural setting. So it doesn't look identical in any uh, two places. That's even true in North America. But we've been struggling with why, Lord, is it that this is going so well everywhere but where we thought we were called to work? And uh, this will be a teaser, uh, but uh, we think we've come up with some interesting answers to that question, that what God is up to uh, in the fact that it's in, especially in places south of the equator, that um, the partnership has things to teach us in North America. And that part of what we need to be doing uh, is 
learning from their experience and having that profoundly shape uh, what we're going to do now in this new generation in the partnerships uh, in North America. I think the second thing um, is that um, there is a growing awareness. I've just read three different manuscripts uh, that I've been asked to uh, comment on and then you know, do the usual blurb. There is a growing uh, choir of practitioners and uh, theologians and church leaders who now have a full generation of experience to analyze and learn from in the Partnership for Missional Church that is, uh, is affecting lots of theological education in this time of massive change uh, in how we're going to have to go about doing uh, the preparation for our spiritual leaders in our local churches and a growing awareness. And it's just a delight for me a growing awareness of how important engaging the whole people of God in this simple question of uh, what is God up to uh, here and now. Rachel, any uh, final questions or comments for Pat this morning? I don't have anything more, Casey. All right. Pat, any questions or comments for us as we finish up today? Ah. It's great being in conversation with both of you, and I look forward to, to more. It uh, truly has been and hopefully will continue for quite some time to be a joy. Uh, so with that, I am Casey Sugden. We're joined by Patrick Kiefer and Rachel Stout. Would you pray us out? I'd be happy to. The Lord be with you. And also, with and also with you. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for your Holy Spirit as it continues to blow th through your church in every time and every place. May we feel its cool yet persistent wind leading and guiding where we should go. Lord, be with your beloved children throughout the world. And be with those who are listening. May they see you at work in their communities, in their homes, and throughout the world. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Until next time, folks, peace, love, and laughter to you all. And to you.